Welcome to the Manor. Welcome back to the Twin Terrors, Macabre Manor of Mead, Metal, and Mayhem. I'm Jody. And I'm James, still, more or less, I think. Yay! <laughs> this Cratchit yeah. ale is going quite down well. Wait, who the fuck am I, Yoda? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. The um, world is going down as well, down here. <laughs> I am drinking a Sam Adams Holiday Porter. Oh, those are so good. Mm-hmm. I've, uh, I've not had my first one of those yet out of my pack. I finally got around to one of the winter loggers, which as much as I've said, I'm not a logger guy. Uh-huh. Uh, winter logger is good. It, it, uh, yeah, yeah, it is. And I'm kind of like you. I'm not real big on loggers, but that one's got a, it's got a better flavor. So it's enjoyable. Tis. Tis. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> So this episode, we are uh, into part two of what's probably actually going to wind up being three. Of, uh, well, I thought I was the asshole with the Led Zeppelin going from two to four. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. I thought you were an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so yeah, this is uh, the second part of our episode on Kiss's album, Music from the Elder. Um, again, I uh, wanted to do it at this time of year because I always associate it with kind of the wintry time of the year because um, one's that's when it was released and two that's when I first bought it several years after it was released <laughs> oh I, I, and I didn't mention I bought it at uh, well I, I think my dad actually bought it for me because <laughs> but but we went to uh, Karma Records in Terre Haute when they still had a store in Terre Haute Indiana wow that's that's old school yeah because we couldn't find it at the mall at uh, disc jockey or record record bar, record, record bar yeah couldn't find it at either one of those anyway yeah uh the music from the elder uh came out november 1981 i originally got it roughly december january time frame i think of 1985 86 uh, it was that winter 85 86 um would, would you like my personal anecdotes sure they match up exactly with yours yeah well i've got three and yeah, uh, two of them have to do with you. No, oh. <laughs> no, no I, I've got four, and two of them have to do with you. <laughs> oh, okay. Interesting. I have no idea I, what these are. I don't know if I mentioned it in an episode. I know I mentioned it to you, Jody, personally, when we're yes. talking about this, that the first time I ever heard Music of the Elder was at your house when we were jamming, and you brought it out, and you're like, you know, I love this, and here's this song, and people seem to think this is a horrible album, and I listen to it, and I'm like, why? That's a pretty damn good album. Yeah. So so there's that. Now, is it my favorite? No. Is it my favorite Kiss album? No. No. <laughs> I'll have more to do on that, but I'll wait till that's more apropos. Yeah, I, I was going to say that's uh, when we get to reaction on the album, that's kind of where I was going to go into, <laughs> into people's. Uh, yeah. Anyway. So this this episode, we're going to get into the album and uh, the release of the album. So kind of wanted to start with the songs. And I'm going to go in the order that they were released on the original vinyl um, and cassette. And I'm assuming eight track, although sometimes eight track tapes, they would put songs in different orders just because of how eight tracks worked. And that's a whole technical issue I'm not going to get into. So. (laughs) You've actually mentioned that in a previous episode. And I don't remember which one. I True. Yeah, I know I brought it up before. And, you know, maybe at some point we can talk about different record formats. <laughs> I have that because I want to talk about vinyl records and what the colors meant of the stickers. 
Oh, okay. So we can, that, that'll be a short episode. So if we add your thing in. Yeah. Perfect. All right. So uh, the album itself, um, as it was released in 1981 in all territories, but Japan. I'll get into that later. Um, uh, side one of the album opened with the song The Oath, which is a straight up galloping hard rock song written by Paul Stanley, Bob Ezrin, and uh, songwriter Tony Powers, who I, I mentioned in the at the end of the previous episode on this. Um, and in this configuration with The Oath at the beginning of the album, it comes across as kind of an overture to set the story up. Um, it's uh, sung by Paul. Yeah, yeah, it's, I don't know, I like it. I mean, yeah, it's, it's not what you would expect. So I get the discomfort some people had with it. Yeah. Um, I, the, the lyrics are very much fantasy oriented, which of course is the story. And, and I guess probably should, because I actually didn't have any notes on what the story itself is, but it's basically this young boy who is the chosen one or whatever. It's, it's the hero's journey. You know, it's kind of like Luke Skywalker's journey in Star Wars. The, the original movie, not the original trilogy, just the original movie of, uh, <laughs> you, you know, you have this destiny before you. I don't know if I want to follow the destiny. You might not have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> that's why it's called destiny. <laughs> yeah, that's why it's called destiny. And uh, yeah, yeah. so yeah. that's, that's kind of what the album's about. And, and him coming to accept that, that destiny. Yeah, it's a, it's a cosmic imbalance that must be restored. Mm-hmm. And, and this boy, the boy, capital letters, yes. is recruited by, or as the hero, by a school's janitor who is Morpheus in this whole arc thing. Am I going too fast? Too, too no, no, you, you're actually telling something that I did not know. Yeah, cool. Yeah, and, and these are quotes according to Eric Cards, Modern Times, according to Carr, and Morpheus is the janitor, according to Carr. And uh, there's Sweet. the Council of the Elders, which is a life form without a body, according to Gene, mm -hmm. and it, which is a part of the Order of the Rose. And, and it's like Jody said, it's simply where the boy is recruited, and he goes through the whole hero's arc, where he starts off unsure of himself and continues on, which we'll get into with the, the songs. Yeah, see, I, I, I actually looked for the press release and could not find it, but my understanding was a lot of this stuff was supposed to be in the press release. And I'm kind of pissed that I couldn't find it. <laughs> Although I did find, I did find um, a bootleg album with some of the demos. So I have listened to some of the demos. Um, and I was, I was, I've been very happy that I have found that. Yes, um, and you're not special. I did too. Although uh -huh. you're, you're the one who pointed them out to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, some of them were up on YouTube, but I actually did find another one that um, I, I was not YouTube. It was actual uh, MP3s. So. Oh, cool. I found the YouTube ones that you told me about. So oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Those were, those were neat. Yeah. And, and pretty much the, the YouTube ones were most of what I was on this MP3 album that I found. But, so the, the next song on the album, uh, it's, it's fanfare capital or not capital, uh, lowercase F. So it's not capitalized, um, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's, it's a fanfare. It's a short musical interlude. Uh, similar to something like uh, when a king or, you know, some nobleman or somebody walks in at court. Yeah, something like that. Uh, that was, it was written by Paul Stanley and Bob Ezrin. Um, and that's followed by Just a Boy, which was also written by Stanley and Ezrin. Kind of a ballad. It introduces the character of the boy, like James said, 
capital B. Um, I Wait, wish the way you said it, I'm thinking of Simpsons now. It's the boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and, and like uh, like you said, uh, is this boy who's unsure of himself, and that's what this song is about. He's saying, "I'm just a boy. Why are why are people looking to me?" You know, he he says, "I'm I'm no hero." You know, and that's the lyric in the song. I'm no hero, though I wish I could be. I am just a boy. And, you know, that's that's what the song's about. Um, Paul sings the song in falsetto a lot. Oh, um, well, nope, I'll wait. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in the, in the last episode, I mentioned uh, the Kiss album, Focus, um, was, was written by Julian Gill. And he said that Paul had problems singing in the falsetto. On, on that song and that Bob Ezrin suggested in hindsight that maybe they should have stopped the project right then when they heard that. <laughs> yeah. <I think. laughs> Although, you know, I think in the end product, I think it sounds good. I, I do. I think that they, I think Paul did nail it, but I, I, it sounds like it was a struggle for them to get it to a point where it was okay to put it out on the album. <laughs> and, I, and I will say this, that is one of the demos. And he didn't always do the falsetto in the demos on those parts. He still sang it at a little bit of a higher register, but he didn't do the falsetto on the demos like he did on the finished album. I just have to be honest. I think Paul's falsettos, oh, I, I did not care for it. I, I'm not saying I like it. I'm just saying that the end product was presentable. <laughs> well... <laughs> because because I do remember the first time listening to that going, wow. <laughs> we have to disagree on that because. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, Paul, your singing voice is not meatloaf to begin with. Right. Even though, you know, you've, you've got your own studliness. It just, uh, you're macho. Well, I, I'm really, I, I would say the only reason they really pushed him doing it in falsetto in the first place was because it's the boy, you know. And I get that, but yeah. you know, if you're in high school and you're a boy, your ball sack has dropped. Yes. My voice dropped in between the summer of seventh and eighth grade. Yeah. You're fine if you have a deep voice as a 16-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> well, and later on in the album, he doesn't really do the falsetto. I think this is really the only song that he does it on. Yeah, and, and I get your point. That's the arc. He starts off as a boy, and he grows into the man. Yeah. I do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, no. I'm, hey, I'm not going to say you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the next song, and Ace is, Ace Frehley's only vocal on the album, and I, possibly his only actual guitar solo. I'm not entirely sure. I, I've actually seen where they've got other songs listed that have Ace playing lead, uh, the guitar solo, but I, I you know, I, I don't know for sure. Um, it's Dark Light, uh, which was co-written by Ace with Gene Simmons, Anton Figg, who we mentioned in the last episode, and Lou Reed, who we also mentioned in the last episode. <laughs> and as much as I kind of, I, I didn't harsh on Lou Reed, because I, if you like that type of thing, he's really good. Yeah, yeah. Um, but this is my favorite song. I kind of figured it was. <laughs> you want to guess why? Um, now go ahead, tell me. It's the only song on the album I really felt that was a Kiss song. 
Yeah. Well, one of what I would say two. Well, maybe that's my second favorite, and we'll see when we get to that. Okay. But it's it's Kiss, and they did revamp it because I listened to your suggestion on the demos. Mm-hmm. So they revamped it to fit. Yeah. But it's still Kiss, and don't get me wrong; I don't care if Kiss tries something else. I love right. Zeppelin's different albums and the way they do it. This was I mentioned last episode. I kind of dig some of Kiss's discoy things. Yeah. Yeah. This is just not. I did not think this was Kiss. This was Kiss. Ooh, ooh, here you go. Are you ready? Yeah. This is what I wrote. This sounds like Kiss doing an imitation of Marillion trying to make a Kiss album. Nice. Yeah. And if you don't <laughs> like that deep cut fuckers, go check out Marillion. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've never listened to them. But I, I, I'm aware of who they are. I've just never listened to them. Yep, I've listened to them uh, enough that when I'm listening to them, I'm like, oh, my God. This sounds like Kiss trying to be Merlin, trying to be Kiss. <laughs> I will have to check them out. Yeah, I yeah, I've, I've I'm familiar enough with the with the band name, the Dark Light. Your favorite song on the album, correct? Um, and you you mentioned that you had listened uh, to the demo. Uh, so it starts off as a uh, it started off during the previous sessions that they had done at Ace's studio uh, as a song called "Don't Run," which the the guitar riff and everything else was identical. Uh, the melody line was identical. Ace just basically rewrote the lyrics. Yeah. Or, or well, maybe Gene rewrote. I'm not sure who wrote the lyrics, but because, like I said, Gene, um, Anton Fig, and Lou Reed all have songwriting credit on it. So, I guess it was a song about a girl. I, <laughs> I well, I know it was because at one point Ace had the Ace had the lyric. Uh, uh, what was it? Your body's not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, nice ace <laughs> yeah. um but it, it as dark, yeah um as dark light it's kind of like the crazy guy standing on the street corner prophesying the end of the world <laughs> only in this case he's kind of right <laughs> that's, a, that's a good point <laughs> yeah <laughs> that, maybe that's why another subconscious reason it's my favorite yes Cleanse all humans, get to the bears and raccoons. Yeah. Wait. Yeah. <laughs> I really got to stop drinking. <laughs> <laughs> so the next song after that is Only You, uh, which was reworked from a song Gene had written in 1968, uh, which was called Eskimo Sun. But this is someone I, I've always guessed it was the character Morpheus. Um, who's talking to the boy and telling the boy that he's the chosen one to fight this evil that's coming that was described in dark light. Um, and it's the boy pretty much going, are you sure about that? <laughs> and why me? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, it's got vocals from both Gene and Paul on it. And, and again, um, you know, we were talking about how Paul sang in a falsetto on just a boy. He doesn't do it on this song at all that I remember. And I've been listening to this off and on here over the past month or so as we've been working on notes for this. So only you segs straight into the next song um, under the rose. Eric Carr co-wrote this. Um, He came up with uh, most of the music and the melody line. And I think Gene wrote most uh, or maybe all of the lyrics. It was one of Eric's first songwriting credits with the band. And it's, I've always kind of taken this as the, the counsel of the elder, as the elder themselves confronting the boy and um, asking him if he's up to the task. 
Yeah, yeah. I, Eric actually has some quotes about him talking about this is where the boy hero faces. One of his first steps is accepting his destiny as he peers before the order of the rose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, according to the uh, Wikipedia entry on this album, Ace Frehley is credited with the guitar solo here. If that's true, uh, this is one of my favorite guitar solos by him, period. It, it, if it's not him, it's still one of my favorite guitar solos on a Kiss album. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> it is. It is a really good guitar solo. Are you ready? Yeah. What did you think about it, James? It's good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it is. But, it is good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a very melodic solo. Um, and and just wow. Uh, I, I'm actually as as I'm talking about it, it's I'm hearing it in my head, and yeah, it's uh, it's one of my favorites by whoever recorded it. It's one of my favorites on a Kiss album. Vocal was by Gene and the uh, St. Robert's Choir, who stood in as the elder. And it gives it a Order of the Rose with yeah, a atmosphere and that. Yes. So there's more than one. Yeah. Yeah. So that finishes off side one of the, uh, of the album. On to side two, which starts, uh, well, uh, there was a song titled Every Little Piece of Your Heart which was originally developed uh, before Bob Ezrin came on as producer. And they reworked that into A World Without Heroes, which starts off side two of the original album. Uh, it was co-written by Gene, Paul, uh, Bob Ezrin, and Lou Reed once they got involved. Paul actually plays the guitar solo here. And uh, uh, according to Bob Kulik, um, who I mentioned earlier, who's friend of the band and uh, older brother to future Kiss guitarist, Bruce Kulik. Paul played the guitar solo here, and according to Bob Kulik, Paul told him that he based it on what he thought Bob would play. Um, and Bob had also played on Paul's solo album from 1978, when they had all four released one. Uh, Bob Kulik took it as a compliment from Paul, um, who apparently doesn't give many. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> yeah. He said, I took, it, I took it as a compliment, and Paul doesn't give many, so... <laughs> <laughs> all right bob <laughs> well, that's like those few times where my brothers have told me i'm all right <laughs> yeah <laughs> um don't talk to me i need to just be quiet and take this in <laughs> yeah uh, again this seems to be someone speaking to the boy only this time uh describing to him how bad the world would be without a hero in it and the vocal on this is by gene so i mentioned i i'd mentioned something about three songs and this is one of them. Uh, so I mentioned Dark Light, yep. my, my favorite. We'll get to my second. This song, I thought, could have been such an anthemic song, but just did not quite make it. Yeah. Like, it, it, like God Gave Rock and Roll to You, their most anthemic song, although it's covered by Argent. Yeah. Uh, Argent song. It's still fantastic when Kiss does it. And if they could have used that, Mm -hmm. back here on world without heroes yeah it, i think it would have made the album yeah i i do think it's one of the better songs on the album but i i do i think you're right on that yeah well thank you thank you my good man yeah i, I wasn't going to care if you disagreed but i, I, I you know that you did not <laughs> yeah <laughs> next is the song mr blackwell which finally introduces the main villain of the story um, Gene co-wrote it with Lou Reed. I'm not sure who plays the guitar solo on here. When I was looking at the Wikipedia thing, it didn't 
say who played it. So I don't know if it's Ace or Paul or somebody I know, else. Right? I had that same issue when we we're talking about another episode. Yeah. And seriously, Wikipedia and band websites and everybody else. Oh, sure. We'll tell you who sang it. No, we want who played the guitar solo too. Yeah. I think it sounds a lot like Ace. So I, I think it may be Ace. But Paul did play several of the guitar solos on the album. And they're the only two that are actually credited as playing on the album. But again, I know that Dick Wagner uh, was somebody that Bob Ezrin used a lot. And also Rick Derringer. So I, speculation, it could have been one of the two of them. But like I said, it sounds very much like an Ace guitar solo. So I'm kind of inclined to think that it was actually one of Aces, but I don't know for sure. Um, I agree with that. Yeah. 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 I, can see that. I, I, I mention it because I, I, I bring that up about who played the guitar solo on it because it's a little out there. And that's why I think it sounds like one of Aces. <laughs> uh, again, this was uh, one of Gene's vocals, which is weird that Gene's is doing Morpheus, but he's also doing mr blackwell which i guess he's not really well yeah because because part of it is from blackwell's point of view but not all of it so i don't know you know I, and i don't have a note for this so it's not one of my three yeah i actually think this would have been a great song sort of other this is another song where this could have made the album much 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 better yeah he makes a really good evil villain asshole yes and which was why his first film role was playing the really mean evil villain asshole right <laughs> so if if it would have been different like if gene would have been just the villain uh-huh that probably but you know you only have so many people and they got rid of peter and eric really wasn't a member of the band even though he's contributing with really kick-ass music but you know so, what I'll, I'll interrupt here they could have let eric sang something on this album right he could have been because more, he was already singing live and I mean, that was one of the reasons they hired him was because he could sing. He could do the Peter Chris songs. Yeah. And if he could have been Morpheus and let Gene be the uh, villain. That would have been fantastic. I think. I, I think they could have rearranged some of the things and really made it a little. Of course, this is all hindsight 2020. Right. What the fuck do we know? <laughs> yeah. But that, that's how I. Yeah. I, I think they could have been more upfront and open and inclusive with. Eric. Yeah. Um, I like the evilness that comes. Oh, I do too. I do too. Even though it is a bit different than the other songs. Yeah. Uh, and, and speaking of Eric Carr, uh, that, cause it's the next song. Um, so uh, Mr. Blackwell ends very abruptly and <laughs> almost segs straight into the next song. There, there is a little bit of a gap. So it's, it's not like with only you it flows right into under the rose. The, it definitely stops. There's just a split second of a gap. You actually do hear the gap. And then it goes straight into Escape from the Island, uh, which is an instrumental, which is basically a jam session with, and, th and this is what I was saying in the previous episode with, um, they didn't just do rehearsals at Ace's studio, because this was a jam session with Ace, Eric Carr, and Bob Ezrin, where Bob Ezrin filled in on bass. So it had to have been recorded at Ace's studio because it was a jam session, which means all three of them were playing at the same time and Ace is on it. And Ace did not go to Toronto when they recorded at Ezrin's up there. But I have a quote from Eric that says, uh -huh. it was a jam with me, Ace and Bob. 
uh, Bob's house, jamming in his little studio room in his basement. So Ace did go to Toronto. Uh, according to Eric. Okay. And if I was going to choose somebody who wasn't completely fouled up on drugs and alcohol. That would be Eric. Might go with Eric over Ace. Yeah. So, okay. So I stand corrected. It was probably recorded in Toronto well, then. You're not corrected. You're going off of what, what, what I, yeah, what I knew. Yeah, so what other people have said. Yeah. So this was okay. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for clarifying that. I like hey, that. That's what I'm here for. Yay. <laughs> hey, um, Indians have bases loaded and there they go. Yeah. <laughs> So songwriting is credited to the three of them. So this winds up with Eric Carr being uh, his second songwriting credit on the album. Julian Gill, who I pointed out, had the the, the Kiss album focus book, um, points out that it's one of the few Kiss songs not to feature Gene or Paul. Wow. You know, I even read that. Like, who did it? Yeah. Did not even connect that. Yeah. I, I didn't I didn't either. And I didn't even really think of it because I the only one I know for sure I can point to is Beth. Because that was... Peter Chris, Bob Ezrin on piano, and an orchestra. Escape from the Island is also a favorite of mine, and I think that's because it's a jam session. Uh, it's got some really good drumming from Eric. Um, I've, I've always loved the bass on it. I was surprised to find out that it was Bob Ezrin. And uh, Ace has got some really good guitar stuff going on. So, Yeah, yeah. That's followed by the song Odyssey, uh, which was written by Tony Powers. Uh, nobody else in the band, just Tony Powers. Uh, he, he later recorded it on a project of his own, which I've not listened to, so I don't know how his version of it turned out. Um, <laughs> uh, but it was sung by Paul. And in the album's original track order, uh, so where it falls on the original version, I always used to consider it kind of the love song on the album. Um, but I'm not entirely sure that's what it's supposed to be. Um, I, some of the lyrics, that's... I, I mean, it, it sounds syrupy, ballady kind of thing, but that it, some of the lyrics also are very cosmic in nature. <laughs> but, but, but there are things, you know, I mean, at one point, I think Paul sings uh, uh, the line, One Another's Odyssey. So it, it does lend itself to being kind of a love song. Uh, but it, it also talks about, um, you know, traveling through time and space. So... <laughs> I, I don't know for sure what it's supposed to be. <laughs> if it's a love song or what. Um, because Ace is like the, you know, star child messenger dude. And, yeah. and there's all these people through space and time. And yeah, it's, I, I'm going to go with the more sci-fi. Yeah. It fits better. I, well, I think so too. Um, uh, the song, it, it is epic. It's an epic song. Uh, the lyrics, like I said, are, are kind of epic. They, all this cosmic stuff. It's got probably the heaviest orchestration out of any song on the album. Um, sadly, Eric Carr does not play on this song. And I'll actually get into that a little bit more as to why he was not on this one. But he was replaced by a session drummer named Alan Schwartzberg. I uh, think Schwartz was strong with him. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> multiple multiple people said it was because Bob Ezrin felt Eric wasn't getting the feel of the song right, but a lot of people a lot of people said that is kind of bullshit. Yeah, it's kind of bullshit, and I'll, I'll get into why in, in a little bit. So the last song on the album is the song "I," probably my favorite song on the album. Ah, it's my second. I see. I figured it was. Um, <laughs> Uh, written by Gene and Bob Ezrin, 
uh, with its course of I Believe in Me, uh, on any other album, it would have been a kick-ass anthem right up there with Rock and Roll All Night and Shout It Out Loud. And yeah, uh, yeah I, I kind of feel like it deserves to be up there. But since it was released on this album, it kind of gets forgotten or overlooked or, you know, whatever. And, and this could have been another anthemic thing because this is where the boy really goes, I got this. Yeah. Is that the boy is accepting his fate and realizing he can face the coming struggle. Gene's lyrics also throws some shade at Ace and his drug use with the, yep. line, <laughs> with the line, I don't need to get wasted. It only slows me down. <laughs> uh, yep. <laughs> So uh, Alan Schwartzberg again played drums on this track uh, for the same reason Bob Ezrin gave on the song Odyssey. Uh, but I, I want to point out there's footage of the band playing this song live um, that was part of which we'll cover the next episode, but it was uh, part of the promotional stuff they did do. Eric played the song fine. I, I nobody that and that's that's why everybody kind of says it's bullshit for saying that Eric wasn't getting the fuel of either of these songs because he played I live and played it perfectly fine so what was the deal so i you know i i still don't know i i don't either and if bob ezrin had been completely sober without emotional baggage from the divorce yeah i would give it and you know so i'm not saying anything bad about bob ezrin but that's what happened and that's what you're going through yeah so you know or eric was the new guy and bob wanted to put his little alpha male out there i don't know mm -hmm. there could be many reasons some acceptable, some not. All understandable. Yeah. So this song was uh, sung by both Gene and Paul, and I believe it was the first time since Shout It Out Loud, um, Gene and Paul had shared vocals and would be the last time they would share vocals until Revenge, uh, with, uh, with you mentioned God Gave Rock and Roll to You. Um, actually, no, it would have been the year, it would have been uh, the, the Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey soundtrack was when that originally came out. That yeah. song, yeah. So, 1991. So yeah, it would be another 10 years before Gene and Paul would actually share vocals on the same song. All right, so that's the end of the album. Uh, so again, going back to something that Julian Gill put in the uh, the Kiss album focus, uh, it suggested that the song "Nowhere to Run," uh, which eventually was released on the uh, compilation Kiss Killers, uh, which I'll get into a little bit more on that later maybe next episode, I'm not sure, <laughs> um, that that song might have been considered for inclusion on The Elder. If it was, then it had different lyrics. Gill points out that early versions of it show up with Just a Boy on bootlegs, and I, I will say the, 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 the album I downloaded with the demos does have Nowhere to Run and another song from the uh, Kiss Killers compilation, Partners in Crime. But both of those songs have the lyrics that they would eventually be released with. So I, neither of those songs would have fit lyrically. Uh, musically, actually, I could, I could see where both of them were written around the same time frame as this album. But yeah, lyrically, they were not anywhere close. Yeah, yep. So I wonder if those were songs that actually came out of the early sessions at Aces before Ezrin was involved. Or if they just get put in on this because Kiss Killers immediately follows this album. And for our listeners in the U.S., I'm going to explain what that is if you don't already know what Kiss Killers is. <laughs> uh, so C.K. Lint, who I mentioned in the last episode, uh, was, was part of their uh, business management team at Glickman Marks. He said that originally the album was just going to be called The Elder, 
but everyone felt it was inevitable that a film would be made. <laughs> so music from was added to the title. So Paul was the one who came up with the design for the cover. It's a, uh, it's a brown wooden door with a large gold knocker with a rose on it. And there's a hand reaching for the knocker. And it's supposed to be heavy with symbolic meaning. Well, C.K. Lent doesn't say what that symbolic meaning is. And I don't have a fucking clue. <laughs> I, I always assumed it was the boy yeah. knocking on the door to go talk to Order the Rose. Yeah, I, I mean that that part I got, but if there's some if there's some other symbolism behind it, I have no idea what the hell it's supposed there's to be. There's no other. If you think there's some <laughs> other symbolism, you're high. Yeah. No, but I I mean I love this cover. Oh yeah. It it's intriguing. It's mysterious. It's like, yes. oh, what's behind the door? Yeah. So I, I loved it, but that's <laughs> that's all there is to it. <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll get into that a little bit here in a minute. But um the band uh, pushed for it being a gatefold cover so it opens like a book inside picture is a uh is very brown like the door it's <laughs> it's a it's a large heavy like oaken table rectangular council table uh, with several chairs and a single large white candle that's lit there's no images of the band anywhere on the cover except for the hand which was actually paul's hand <laughs> yes i actually it's the first one right without any band yeah yeah, it was the first one without any images of the band on it. And uh, everybody tried to say they got a hand model until recent images showed up of Paul actually, like, with yeah. his boy face going, <laughs> Yeah, I love that picture. <laughs> Polygram, who had bought up Casablanca Records, uh, they hated the cover. <laughs> they, they, they had to force the band to even put their name and album title on it. Because apparently the band didn't want to put the, the band's name and the album title on it because I, I'm guessing they were trying to pull what Led Zeppelin did on their fourth album, which was force the record label to put the album out without the band's name or album title on the album cover. Yep, you get nothing and like it. <laughs> and uh, so to compromise, they did put it on there, but it's a smaller font than it normally would have been. Usually the, the, the KISS logo would have been huge and it's actually small. It's in like the upper left corner and then music from the elder is over on the upper right corner. Yeah. So I've seen several different release, release dates. So I don't know exactly what day it was released, uh, but it definitely came out in November of 1981. Bill LaCoin, who was the band's manager, said that the record label didn't know what to do. <laughs> They, they didn't want to release it, asked if they could shelve it and get another record. <laughs> nope. Yeah. Paul said the record label hated it and changed the track order, um, which Paul equated with tearing pages out of a book, throwing them up in the air, and then putting them back together. <laughs> totally agree. I, I listened to the correct order that they wanted it in. Uh -huh. In the order they came out with originally, I'm like, no. Yeah. Track order is a really big thing. And this is one of the albums I point to for justifying that, that statement. <laughs> because like I said, with the oath at the beginning of the album, it kind of plays like an overture, but that's not where the band intended for the song to be. And when you move it back later on in the album where it's supposed to be, it totally changes the feel of that song and everything makes more sense. 
because the, because the narrative actually flows. Um, I, I'll get into that a little bit more uh, probably next episode. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, C.K. Lent uh, in his book, Kiss and Sell, uh, said that when Polygram heard the album, they asked it, that it be remixed to bring up the guitars. They owed Kiss $2 million for a record they didn't want to release. They considered not accepting the album and demanding a new one, but they didn't want to wait several months for the band to go back in the studio and record a new one. <laughs> so they went ahead and put it out. I mean, they weren't ready for anything else unless they redid the demos. Yeah. There were spoken parts that bridged the, some of the songs. And uh, when the label reordered the tracks, most of those were cut. The only one that was left uh, was at the end, right after the song, I. Um, originally, I think it's listed as a track called Finale. Uh, when they remastered it in 1997, they just basically made it part of I, so that I, I, it just keeps running until that ends. Uh, by the way, just mm -hmm. as a quick thing. Yeah. I, 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 I. <laughs> Okay. I'm good. Thanks, Ozzy. <laughs> yeah. Paul Stanley went to a record store the day the album was released. He said he saw the giant poster and realized how far astray they had gone. <laughs> you know, you you were saying you you love the cover, and I I actually do too. I, I I'm kind of like you on that. Uh, but C.K. Lent said the record retailers hated it. <laughs> and you was going with Paul when he saw the thing, and he's like, "What the hell?" He uh, one of his quotes is. Biggest misstep of our careers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, C.K. Lent, who's talking about the record retailers, he uh, he said that the record retailers were saying customers couldn't see the record, that the brown cover blended in with the with the racks. I guess I see that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you want something that pops. Yeah. And this I, did not pop. <laughs> I mentioned in our Halloween, first Halloween episode, that one of the reasons they got it was not just the name, but then I saw the album cover. I'm like, hell yeah 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 because it jumps out at you yeah yeah like a like an evil thing Blah. yeah yeah <laughs> so so in, in japan they remedied this by putting a picture of the band over the cover <laughs> you know in japan the that's the one place the door would have worked <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so needless to say the album bombed horribly worldwide yeah. Do you want another uh, only top 20 placements? I, I did see this, but yes, I didn't make a note of it. So I figured you would. I <laughs> <laughs> sure did. How well you know me. Yeah. All right. You ready? Yes. Number five on the Swiss charts. Not number, bad. Number seven on the Norwegian charts. Yeah. Number 10 on the German charts. Yeah. You want to know what else where it peaked in the top 20? Sure. Nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> that's it i think it was 75 or 76 on the u.s charts and then disappeared really quick uh, sounds familiar it was not up there very far yeah all. um although i do think uh, was it australia it was certified gold in australia although a gold certification in australia i don't know what the what the number is for that requirement but i think they sold they, they said at the time it hit thirty-five thousand copies sold in Australia, so that qualified it for a gold record in Australia. Yep, as, as a, Australia gold, yep. Yeah, as, as opposed to the U.S., where a gold record is 500,000, and it is still the only KISS record not certified. No, it's one of two KISS records not certified gold. Well, that's fair. The U.S. has a much bigger population. Yeah. Proportionally about the same. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. oh, and you're right. Uh, peaked at 
75 on the US. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. What you want to guess the UK? Um, I think I saw it, but I don't remember what it is. So yeah, go ahead. 51. 51. See, it did better there. <laughs> so some uh, US sucks. <laughs> yeah. So some reactions uh, after it was released. Um, so there's this guy, I, I guess he's a KISS super fan. They interviewed him for Eric Carr's biography, the Eric Carr story. Uh, this guy named Bob Graw, uh, he, he talked about the album coming out. He says, I remember seeing the pictures. The pictures came out before the album came out, and it was like KISS's new look. They all cut their hair and were wearing completely different outfits from their dynasty and unmasked outfits. I was like, wow, that's cool. This looks pretty tough, except for Paul Stanley's purple headband. Now, Paul actually explains this in his autobiography. Paul was born with a condition called microtia. So he's, he's, he had a disfigured ear, um, actually was, was deaf on his right side because his right ear was disfigured when he was born. And eventually, actually, in the interim, after this album came out and before they started working on the next one, they had some time off. So Paul actually had reconstructive surgery on the ear so that he <laughs> actually has an ear there now. Um, but he wore that headband because his hair was so short, he wore that headband to cover his ear. You know, um, first, it makes sense. Yeah. Second, Paul, your fans aren't going to give a crap. Uh, probably not. But uh, uh, Bob... Bob Graw, this super fan, uh, he, he goes on to say, uh, but I remember waiting in line at Models to buy it. I got it home, put it on, and the first track on the original printing of The Elder was The Oath, which was a great kick-ass hard rock song. I was like, all right, they're back. And boy, where did it go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> song after song, I was like, what is this? Why are Kiss trying to reproduce Tommy by The Who? I didn't get it. Not a lot of other people did. After 25 years, uh, whenever he gave this interview for the book, um, after 25 years, the album eventually grew on me, and I love it. But yeah, I didn't get it. <laughs> yeah, I uh, when, when I saw the promotional things, I, I'd seen them before when I was young, but I looked yeah. at them, and my two thoughts are, Paul Stanley looks like he should be in Flashdance. Yeah. <laughs> and Gene is the progenitor of the man bun. Gene had a really long braid, actually. You can't tell that, though, from the promos. No. The promos look like he has a big-ass man bun. <laughs> and if you want people to see what you look like, Gene, then let people see what you look like. Yeah. <laughs> so they, uh, they actually did look into a tour uh, before the album came out. <laughs> <laughs> Again, in uh, the, the book Kiss Alive Forever, Kurt Gooch and Jeff Suss uh, said that Mark Ravitz, who had helped design the stage for the Destroyer tour, he was hired to design a stage production. So he came up with several ideas. Some of them included a simulated swarm of bees. No, bees, not bees! <laughs> I still don't know how that was supposed to work. I, I'm like, what? What? <laughs> how do you... Do what the hell is that supposed to be? I don't know. Uh, there was a kiss temple a well called called the well of the unknown <laughs> and according to uh loretta caravello eric Carr's sister one of the ideas involved ace wearing a fake jet pack and flying around the stage <laughs> which they they already kind of did something like that gene had at least on the dynasty and unmasked tours and they actually 
reincorporated it when they went back to the makeup on the reunion tour. Gene has a, a flying rig is what they call it. And it basically, it's a, they hook a harness onto him and during his bass solo and fly him up to the top of the light truss above the stage where he sings God of Thunder. And I'm guessing it was probably something like that that they were going to do. Another stage design uh, looked kind of like a spaceship. And, uh, and this one, I, I like this one because they actually wound up using this idea. They had the drum riser on a tank turret that had four barrels. And that influenced the design for, this, for the tank stage that they used on the Creatures of the Night and Lick It Up tours that came after this. I have actually seen some of these drawings that Rabbits did. Uh, I found, I saw a YouTube video or something. Somebody was auctioning off the, the, the drawings and they were going through the video, going through and showing each design. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, yeah, they were, they were kind of ambitious stage productions. So uh, in spite of not doing a tour, uh, they did do some promotion for the album. On December 7th, 1981, they recorded an appearance on the syndicated music show, Solid Gold. Everybody says they lip sync to this, and, and when I actually found on YouTube the broadcast, or a copy of the broadcast, whatever, it was the video for A World Without Heroes that was not them performing, doing lip syncing on Solid Gold. It was actually the music video for World Without Heroes. Uh, but they did lip sync to The Oath and I, and that aired sometime in January, and I do remember watching that. Actually, I remember watching that episode. I've got a note. All I know is it's mid-January. Like, it, yeah. So I know on January fifteenth, on a show called Fridays, they did a World Without Heroes, mm -hmm. I and the Oath. And when I read all the information, it looked like it was the same date as the fifteenth, but nobody said. So yeah. Yeah. Well, it's in in the book Kiss Life Forever. They say that that yeah they 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 give that as the uh, solid gold episode, but. The, the Kissology DVD set, the volume two of that, actually has that Friday's performance. And that's one, that's how I know for sure that Eric Carr could play the song I perfectly like it was on the album. Bob Ezrin, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> in, in the book Kiss of Life Forever, they said that it was at the Solid Gold taping. I, I, one of those, uh, Blackie Lawless from the band Wasp, um, he was he was friends with Ace. I, I'm guessing he was kind of friends with Gene and Paul too, because they were all from New York. One of those Blackie was in the audience, but yeah, you're right. They did. They did the oath world without heroes and I, uh, and then a little bit later in the month on January 28th, they again did a lip sync performance of I only this time it was from studio 54, uh, the famous disco from the, from the seventies. And uh, that was shown via satellite in Italy. At, yeah, it was for the Pope. Yeah. Uh, it was a San Remo festival. Right. Yeah. For the Pope. Yeah. I don't know if it was for the Pope or not, but it was the it, same. It was, I'm just trying to get Father Guido Sarducci. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> they had to perform as a three-piece because Ace was not there. They said Ace was under the weather. Um, I've actually seen different variation, different stories as to why Ace didn't show up. And one of those may have been under the weather because he was too out of it, but I don't know. What's <laughs> a version of under the weather? <laughs> yeah. So uh, one of the ideas that Bill LaCoyne had for promoting it was to do a closed circuit TV special shown at movie theaters across the U.S. But the, the guy who actually ran that promotion, he, he didn't want to touch it. <laughs> <laughs> so like I said, they did a video for World Without Heroes. They also did a video for I. 
The video for I showed them playing to for an audience on kind of an alien landscape, but that was scrapped in favor of a video featuring footage of live performances throughout the band's career up to that point, uh, which which was weird because it included both Peter Chris and Eric Carr. <laughs> and and both of these videos are up on are actually. Uh, both versions of I and the World Without Heroes video are up on YouTube if you want to check them out, as, as well as the, the Friday's footage and the Solid Gold. So the only thing I couldn't find was the San Remo Festival stuff that they did at Studio 54, although I did find an interview from when they got to Studio 54 before they got up on stage. Oh, neat. Yeah, I just couldn't find the actual performance. They didn't do anything else then again until, what, 95 for MTV Unplugs, A World Without Heroes? Yeah. Uh, and I'll get to that in the next episode. That's um, oh, okay. No, it's, it's a little foreshadowing. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, so MTV had debuted in August of 1981, which you would have thought was a natural fit for a visual band. But Kiss's parent label, Polygram, of course they were on Casablanca, but Casablanca was owned by Polygram. Polygram wouldn't give videos of any of their artists to MTV because MTV was getting them for free from the other record labels. And Polygram didn't want to give them for free because we had to pay to make the video. You should pay us. Well, but you, have, Poly- you have to at least give, you know, whatever a cent or penny is for every time you play a song on the radio. Yeah. There should be something. Yeah. Yeah. But Polygram eventually realized that MTV could drive album sales. So they eventually started sharing their videos with the network. Uh, That also makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. uh, So A World Without Heroes became the first Kiss video to air on MTV in April of 1982. And I'm going to say we're probably over our time limit on this episode. (laughs) I was going to mention that, but yeah. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) Uh, So on that note, uh, we will pause there for episode two of Music from the Elder. And we will come back with part three, the final chapter. And I'm excited. So Yay! excited. Which oh, we will. Paul Stanley and Flashdance. Yeah. <laughs> Where we will talk more about some of the reactions to the album and, and uh, various other things. Yeah, and Rudy. Yeah. You'll well, know what we mean. Okay. <laughs> Next Elder Time. Next Elder <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're going to Gene's comic book theme. Yeah, you know, I got you. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, I'm Jody. And I'm James. <laughs> Later. Bye. The Macabre Manor is brought to you by the Twin Terrors. All rights reserved. Stay tuned for some fun outtakes. So, yeah. Uh, all right. So, I'm going to pause here. That was supposed to be into part one. Uh, I'm going to finish off the Bad Elmer Sporter here. Yay! Me make these. I think we should do an episode on Father Guido Sarducci. Like <laughs> <laughs> I'm adding it. Oh, that was always a favorite on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> I'm a the Pope. <laughs> was because you mentioned unmasked that is the first kiss album i actually vividly remember seeing for sale at sears and honey creek square they always had the new releases for the vinyl yeah it entranced me because of both the comic book aspect because they would do this oh they're gonna take their masks off masks off oh my gosh and and when they do 
they still had their masks on underneath the mask. And yeah. I was just like, that is the most awesome motherfucking thing ever. <laughs> it's like creepy, awesome, brilliant, scary, yeah. all together. It's, it's funny you think so. I'll, I'll get into that a little bit later. <laughs> I, personally, I, I also like that album cover. And interestingly enough, I didn't mention this in the last episode when I mentioned Bob, but he was almost in the band because he had auditioned for the band back in 1972 and they, they were going to offer him the gig and then Ace auditioned. And even though they kind of felt Bob was a little bit better of a guitarist, they said that Ace had a better feel to his playing and kind of fit in a little bit more with what they were trying to do. Uh, Ace, you and your mixed mask shoes. Yeah. And I always pictured that Ace was wearing a pair of Chuck Taylors. I have two, but they were different color Chuck Taylors that like oh. one was like blue and one was orange or something like that. That's just, and, and I've always pictured that Ace was just oblivious to the fact that he put on different color shoes. <laughs> I, I swear I read their Chuck Taylors of two different colors. I it would not surprise. And, and part of the reason I bring that up is I'm wearing my Chuck Taylors right now. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mispronounced boof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I guess that's an inside joke we'll have to share eventually. Yeah. Once we're pretty sure she's not listening. <laughs> um, wow, I misspelled that and my computer didn't pick it up. <laughs> Real easing? <laughs> I, I don't know what I spelled there in my computer. I don't know. I've got this thing supposed to be doing spell check and it ain't doing shit. Um, would, would you like an anecdotal story about God gave rock and roll to you? Sure. So I'm in the movies uh, with, with Jody watching uh, Bill and Ted. Yeah. And the song comes on. And I'm trying to focus on the screen. But I'm pretty sure Jody got a heart on because his popcorn bucket suddenly was up at eye level in my peripheral vision. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we all want it to be. <laughs> I had no idea they had recorded the song for the movie. I didn't know they were supposed to be on the soundtrack. And the song starts playing and James leans over and he goes, was that the kiss song they were going to do for the, for the movie? And I went, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> and then they start singing and I'm like, fuck, that is Gene and Paul. <laughs> it's the one time I knew something about kiss. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was hilarious. I had no clue. <laughs>